I think since the very beginning, America has struggled with the question of whether it was a turkey or an eagle. If that sounds like the dumbest sentence you've ever heard, bear with me. This question dates back to the founding of the country, when the first Americans were trying to decide just what kind of country they wanted America to be. They were leaving an imperialist bully, Great Britain, behind and trying to forge not only a new country, but a new kind of country. They wanted to be powerful enough to be left alone, but not so powerful that they became the next Great Britain. They wanted enough power to sustain a little self-governing republic, far from the wars and intrigue and taxation of old Europe. Along with drafting all of the formal documents for this new nation, like the Articles of Confederation and the U.S. Constitution, the Founding Fathers had to choose a national seal to appear on official documents representing the newly organized U.S. government. In 1782, they chose a circular image with a bald eagle at its center. One talon holds 13 arrows and the other holds an olive branch. In the beak of the eagle is a banner with the motto, E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. A few years later, in 1789, this eagle officially became the national bird, and since that time, it's become the symbol most synonymous with our national identity. When you see the bald eagle, you think America and vice versa. From an aesthetic standpoint, the great seal of the United States is hard to argue with. It's classic, it's cool, especially in monochrome, and most of us probably like it. But one founding father in particular, Benjamin Franklin, thought it was a terrible idea, and I happen to agree with him. The bald eagle might be the coolest looking bird in all of nature and it's only indigenous to North America. If you've ever stood next to one, as I have a few times in larger zoos, you were probably awed by the size of it. They stand about three feet tall, have wingspans of between seven and eight feet, and they can dive at the speed of 100 miles per hour. Additionally, they build the largest nests of any animal species. These nests, and I'm not making this up, can be 13 feet deep, 8 feet wide, and weigh over 2,000 pounds. These are the juggernauts of the avian world. Altogether, the bald eagle is as impressive and as intimidating as they come, but it's also kind of a dirtbag. The bald eagle is so big, it doesn't have to hunt for itself, so much as wait for a smaller bird to catch something and then steal it from him. Just look this up sometime. There are plenty of videos online. The bald eagle is really good at stealing the fruit of other animals' labors, like smaller birds, foxes, and yes, even human beings. In other words, the bald eagle is basically a bully. So when Congress put this big, beautiful, bullying bird on America's greatest seal, Franklin was not a fan. I asked Mark if he was familiar with this criticism. I think the comment, he, and he actually makes the comment, it's in a letter. 
that he wrote to a daughter, because I think he and Adams and Jefferson were commissioned shortly after the Declaration of Independence in 1776 to work on a national symbol. And it's interesting, the one that Franklin actually supported shows something about Moses with an extended hand against the Pharaoh and the waters come crashing in. And this is what happens to tyrants. And if you're disobeying tyrants, all this is aimed at George III and the English. If you're disobeying tyrants, you're obeying God. And so interesting for Franklin, the deist here, to have such a religious symbol of Moses. But he wrote in a letter to a daughter about eight years later, something that he never thought was going to be public, I don't think. And it's typical Franklin, it's kind of humorous. And and he says these things about the eagle being kind of a predatory bird and it waits on a certain kind of hawk to go in and, and get food and then just steals it away from it. So it's a bully and it's a thief. <laughs> Here's the passage Mark is referring to from a letter to Franklin's daughter. For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen, the representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree near the river, where too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk. And when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish, and is bearing it to his nest for the support of his mate and young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. With all this injustice, he is never in good case. But like those among men who live by sharpening and robbing, he is generally poor and often very lousy. Besides, he is a rank coward, the little king bird, not bigger than a sparrow, attacks him boldly and drives him out of the district. He is therefore by no means a proper emblem for the brave and honest Cincinnati of America who have driven all of the king's birds from our country. Franklin's preferred alternative, the wild turkey, which I don't have to describe because you probably eat one every Thanksgiving. The only possible way this bird will ever impress you it's by how good it tastes or how sleepy it makes you after you've eaten one. But Franklin preferred it to the bald eagle, saying, For in truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird, and withal a true original native of America. Eagles have been found in all countries, but the turkey was peculiar to ours. In the first of the species seen in Europe, being brought to France by the Jesuits from Canada and served up at the wedding table of Charles IX. He is besides, though a little vain and silly, a bird of courage and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. Wild turkeys are native to North America, but they can't hunt or intimidate or dive at 100 miles per hour. They can barely fly. Their nests are humble, and they get up every morning 
and work for their food. They eat what they can find for themselves and nothing more. And this is what Franklin loved about them. Remember, Franklin was the author of Poor Richard's Almanac and the coiner of phrases like no gains without pains and early to bed and early to rise makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. He was all about honesty and the virtues of hard work and fair play. Of course, he hated the bald eagle. Of course, he loved the turkey. Franklin knew all about the privileged alpha oppressor who swoops in and confiscates the fruits of the labors of others. That was King George III and the kingdom of Great Britain, circa 1782. That was the heart of the whole drama over taxation without representation in the lowly American colonies. The tone of Franklin's letter is playful, but as the old saying goes, many a truth is hidden in jest. Franklin was well known for framing stinging criticisms in witty language. Even in joking, there's a great line that in a Cary Grant movie, The Bishop's Wife, and Cary Grant's an angel. Anyway, it's a Christmas movie. And he's got this great line in this bishop who he's been sent to to help. The bishop says, I can never tell when you're serious and when you're joking. And the angel, Cary Grant, says, I'm never more serious than when I'm joking. And I thought, I think that's Franklin. He's kind of being lighthearted about this and joking. And yet, maybe he is making a serious point that's worth looking at, and you think what other societies and what other countries have had the eagle as their symbol. It's a Roman symbol. And so many people have seen the double-headed eagle, kind of two eagles looking in opposite directions. That was the symbol of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which we usually call the Byzantine Empire, you know, that Rome falls in the West in the 400s to the Germanic barbarians. But the eastern half of the Roman Empire goes for another thousand years, goes for another millennium down to the capture of Constantinople in 1453 by the Ottoman Turks. And their symbol is the eagle. And it's this double-headed eagle, which after the fall of Constantinople, it shows up in Russia. And it's adopted by the czars. And the word czar for People who used to spell czar, C-Z-A-R, it's the Slavic word for Caesar. And so the Russian czars saw themselves as the successors of the Romans and the Caesars. And after Constantinople fell and is a Muslim city of Istanbul, Moscow starts to refer to itself as the third Rome. And so now they're the heir of the first Rome, which was Rome, the second Rome, which was Constantine's city. Constantinople, and now Moscow is the third Rome, and there will never be a fourth, they say. And, and it's Christian Russia, but it's this powerful heir to imperial Rome that the Romanovs have as their symbol until the collapse of the monarchy. And I believe the double eagle is even back as the symbol of the modern Russian Federation. You see the double-headed eagle in the Holy Roman Empire and various Germanic States. This list of sprawling militaristic empires is not the kind of company the founding fathers ever intended to keep. The eagle has been a go to symbol throughout history for kings, dictators, and czars. It's a beautiful bird for sure, but in one sense, it fails to represent the type of country America was founded to be. Yeah, it's an interesting 
symbol of what? Empire and power and conquest. And I find Franklin's humor and hesitancy about that kind of interesting. Uh, do we want to be, uh, again, they, they love classical history. See, like all the founding fathers, what they read is classical literature, classical philosophy. They read Homer, they read Virgil. Many of them read it in Latin, you know, the, the, they, they know Greek. And so you have this great influence of the classical world on the founding fathers. And they saw this new American experiment also as a new Rome, but they saw it as the Roman Republic and not as the Roman Empire. Because uh, Rome was a small republic for 500 years before it became the empire with the civil wars and the clash of Octavian and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar and all those guys. One of the most obvious places this has manifested itself is in the size of our standing army. Up until the last 75 years, the U.S. has had one of the smallest armies in the world. The kind of army you would expect from a small, isolationist republic. When World War I broke out, the U.S. military was relatively tiny, smaller than nations like Serbia, Greece, and Bulgaria. And following that war, we promptly demilitarized, so that when World War II came around 20 years later, our army was once again one of the smallest of any of the so-called great powers. World War II breaks out. You know, you hear the United States has the 19th largest army in the world somewhere behind the army of Czechoslovakia, let alone Britain and France and Russia and Germany and all these other powers. Poland would have had a much larger army. So the United States reluctantly, it seems, certainly in the world wars, goes to war late, tried to stay out of it. It wasn't a militaristic tradition. I wonder if that's partly what Franklin, you know, is hinting at. Do we want to be one of these imperial powers with a predatory bird as our symbol or something that's on the Thanksgiving table that will put us to sleep? It was just jarring when I, or maybe it was put in the form of a question. What is the second largest air force in the world after the United States Air Force? And I'm trying to think, and I'm thinking, okay, is it Russia? Is it Britain? And they said the United States Navy. And I thought, wow, that is uh, truly amazing that we have the two largest air forces in the world, the Air Force and the Navy. And that's different than so much of American history when we didn't have a global presence. Now, some say, like it or not, that's the world that we, in some ways, helped to create in 19. 41 to 1945, and to retreat from that would be irresponsible. All of this is very complicated, of course. The world has changed, and so has America's place within it. Have we become, or are we responsible for a Pax Americana? I mean, you have the Pax Romana in the ancient world, and, and Rome appears to be a stabilizing force, but it's a, you know, it's an eagle. It's an imperial power that exerts its will on other people. And so you have that tension in American history. You know, at the beginning of the movie Patton, George C. Scott gives this famous monologue at the beginning. And he says, uh, 
something about real Americans love the sting of battle, you know, Americans love war, that their stuff being written about America being pacifist and isolationist, all that's nonsense. And it really isn't because America, it seems, is both of those things. And we live with that kind of tension that when it became necessary, we stepped up. And, and then in World War II, we went from having an army of not even 200,000 to an army, well, to all the armed services, having over 15 million people in uniform. But then even after the Second World War, there was such a de-escalation and uh, that we were kind of unprepared for Korea when it broke out suddenly in the summer of 1950. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hometown History is brought to you by Ritual. We deserve to know what we are putting in our bodies and why, especially when it comes to something that we take every day. I'm very careful about this because many vitamins out there have lots of fillers, like sugars, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. Think about it, you wouldn't eat food unless you trusted where it came from and how it was made, would you? This is why I've been taking Ritual for more than a year. Their clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms our body can actually use. You know how some multivitamins have that fishy aftertaste? Well, one of my favorite things about Ritual is it has a very fresh minty taste and their delayed release capsule design makes taking your vitamins easy. Ritual is also made traceable so you'll always know what nutrients you're taking and where they come from thanks to Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain. Get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. 
Visit ritual.com slash hometown to start your ritual today. If you enjoy hometown history, and I sure hope you do, if you've ever finished an episode and thought that you wish you could have contributed your own knowledge about our topic or even ask questions, well, now you can. Three times each week, we are presenting live podcasts exclusively in the Stereo app. Even better, you can join the conversation live and talk directly to us on the app. This is exclusive content that isn't available anywhere else. It includes conversations about history, paranormal, and pretty much any topic that we find fascinating and worth discussing. So take out your smartphone right now, open a web browser, and go to Stereo.com slash Hometown History. Download the app through the link, create your own avatar, and then follow at Hometown History. There you will also see past conversations, along with all of our future ones. Again, go to Stereo.com slash Hometown History to join in on the conversation. I'll see you there. Hometown History is also brought to you by Indeed. If you're using anything other than Indeed for your hiring, you're wasting your time. Hire great people faster with Indeed. Only pay for results and get back time in your schedule. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly so you can do the part you really need faster, meeting and hiring great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts. You can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you see a list of great candidates with zero weight, and Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest. Once your quality shortlist fast, you need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash hometown. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash hometown. Indeed.com slash hometown. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. We fought a number of global wars in the 20th century, and we turned out to be pretty good at them. At some point, the historical balance between the demilitarized republic and the wartime juggernaut became tilted dramatically in the direction of the bald eagle. But some of this is just a product of our time in history, in which America can no longer operate as an isolated superpower on the opposite side of the world. The world's a lot smaller than it was. The oceans are no longer a protection against planes and ships and submarines and ballistic missiles. And maybe that's a, a pining a nostalgia for a bygone era, but that always was America. We were both of those things. Maybe we should have a double-headed bird and one head's a turkey and one head's an eagle. And I wonder if that was Franklin's maybe point or concern of what this symbol may come to represent. I don't know. What do you think? I like it. The Romans had a double-headed eagle 
I'd love to see this two-headed beast that Marx suggested here. With the head of a turkey on one side and the head of a bald eagle on the other. At this point in history, America is both a warlike empire and an isolationist republic. The empire, when it needs to be, and the republic, when it can be. And the eagle only communicates one of those things. As I've been thinking about Franklin and his contempt for America's national bird, I've started to wonder if the way of the bald eagle has become the American way of life, even beyond the scope of our gigantic military. In early American history, this country really did view itself as more of a wild turkey, a humble, hard-working society full of blue-collar people who are economically free and live with a realistic pursuit of happiness. Obviously, there were social problems with the country, terrible ones, like slavery, sexism, and bigotry of all kinds. But the way of the turkey was at least the ideal. Today, it seems that so many of our aspirations and our problems as a society are of the bald eagle variety. Giant hedge funds lurk in high-rises over Wall Street, waiting to swoop in on smaller businesses that actually produce things, and then they destroy them. I mean, just listen again to Franklin's description of the bald eagle's hunting tactics. He might as well be describing the great financial bullies and predators of our own time. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree near the river, where too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk. And when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to his nest for the support of his mate and young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. Big businesses and big banks have found ways to control the economy for their benefit by doing this sort of thing in increasingly creative ways. And all of this has come to be known as part of life, the American way. Franklin would hate this, and I think he'd say, in his inimitable, tongue-in-cheek way, I told you so. Of course people think this is an acceptable way to behave. You made it your national bird. But I like Mark's idea of balancing this symbol with something humbler, more commonplace, and more representative of our peacetime ideals. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy wrote in a letter to the Audubon Society, The fierce beauty and proud independence of the bald eagle aptly symbolizes the strength and freedom of America. In his words, the founding fathers made an appropriate choice when they selected this great bird as the emblem of the nation. With all due respect to JFK, I'm not so sure. I'm siding with Franklin on this one. If you have any thoughts on the eagle turkey dilemma, feel free to reach out and share them on Twitter or Instagram. I'd love to hear them. Don't miss our Hometown History Live episodes exclusively over on the Stereo app. We go live three times a week and we want to hear from you. Just open a browser and go to Stereo.com slash Hometown History. Our latest Stereo show went a little bit like this. So usually when you're in a cemetery, you're going to be on a lot of 
dirt. You might have a little bit of pavement or there's grass. If you have some pathways, maybe they're made out of rocks, maybe some sidewalks here or there, but this is like red brick and you just, you can walk through all these different areas. They have wonderful mausoleums in there. There's one that looks like a log cabin and there's literally the statue of the guy who's buried in there sitting on top of the log cabin. And I guess the story goes that he wanted to be able to survey the cemetery from where he was sitting there. And I don't know how people feel about the Confederacy, but the symbol for them was a lion. And they had this, there's a statue there of a lion that's laying down and it's about twice the size of what a normal lion would look like. But it's just so cool to see this lion statue sitting there that looks like he's sleeping across a grave. So that's really cool to see there. And uh, they just have so many wonderful mausoleums. Mausoleums are my favorite part of going to a cemetery. If I walk into a cemetery and they don't have at least one, I'm like, this isn't legit. 